Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Sometimes we want so desperately for Jesus to be a superhero that we willfully ignore what is written before our eyes. Faced with powerful religious chiefs and elders, men whose position and power in Israel depends on the approval of the very people they mistreat, we ourselves are blinded by titles and want to make the phrase son of man into a title of equal or greater value. But it's not, because Matthew is critiquing titles and the trail of lies and abuse that follows them. In biblical terms, son of man means ordinary human being. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus stands before the supposed rulers of the people as an ordinary child of Adam, just like you and me. He has no one to impress, no need to please, and no reason to fear. His only concern is his father's desire that he take every situation, including his impending death, as an opportunity teach scripture. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 1 to 5. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 392 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It seems like only yesterday that we were talking about bread and circuses in the Gospel of Mark because the leaders of the people who are interested in providing security are always really concerned about the attitude of the mob. And while that hasn't been a major theme in Matthew, it's a basic theme in the Gospels because it's how human power works. You can't avoid it. Even though at this point, Roman society had no interest in democracy, it still relied on the attitude of the mob, which is just another kind of democracy. You need the mob to love you. Whether you pull the mob, whether you check their likes and their dislikes on social media, whether they go to a voting booth and tell you what they want, whether they cheer for you or spit at you, whether you engage in demagoguery or eloquent speech, one way or another, your power depends on the attitude 
of the people. And so you have already at the beginning of chapter 26 the question of a man's execution, but that's not the question that the supposed rulers of God's people are discussing. They're discussing the attitude of the mob. Empire functions so that we can have peace and stability within our walls, but in order to get to that point, we have to strike terror in the minds and the hearts of those who surround us so they don't want to come and mess with us. Our stability, our peace, relies on the fear of outsiders. Sebastian Younger recently said in an interview that the freest societies tend to be the most violent societies. Because if you're the most violent, you have freedom because nobody wants to come and mess with you. Everybody leaves you alone, i.e. you're free. In this section, we see that the leaders of the temple are very much in line with the thinking of the leaders of Rome, the leaders of the empire, because they want stability. Jesus is not interested in stability, and this is why the Gospels are so powerful, and I'll keep saying it, that the Bible is basically anti-empire. Jesus began chapter 24 talking about the destruction of this eternal city of Jerusalem. And here he's talking about his own death. When someone does not need stability, they are a threat to the stability that the empire projects. This is what makes Jesus a threat, is that he does not care about stability. He doesn't want to destroy the city, but he admits that it's eventually going to fall, and it doesn't matter to him. He doesn't care. Jesus is not invested in the core value of this society, which is peace and freedom. He doesn't care. The only peace and freedom that he gets are from his Father, and the only society he belongs to is the kingdom of heaven. This is going to make the rulers very nervous, and this, in chapter 26, begins the greatest troubles that Jesus is going to have, which Jesus faces head-on, not because he loves the people, but because he loves his Father and he's obedient to his Father. Just like in the last episode, we talked about how one takes care of those who are in need because one is ordered to, not because it makes you feel good in your belly. It's because you are ordered to and you are serving your master. Here Jesus continues to serve his only master, his father and the king of the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. I find it striking, Richard, that at the end of chapter 25, we've gone through this progression of instruction that eviscerated the religious institution, the civic institution, which really, as we've said many times, they're one and the same, which eliminated anything that we cling to that gives us security or any sense of superiority or hegemony. It's all gone. And all we're left with is the judgment at the end of chapter 25, 
which cares only for how we treated those who have less than us or who are worse off than us. We now come to chapter 26, and Jesus has finished saying all of that. So he took everything away from us and then warned us that even after having lost everything, we will be judged on the basis of how we treat those who are worse off than we are. And then he finished speaking. This is the end times. He's spoken. He's said everything he needs to say. And now it's time for him to be crucified. And notice again, he refers to himself as the Ben Adam, the human being, the son of the human being, the ordinary guy is going to be crucified. This is how he's going to ridicule Caesar. Rather, this is how his father is going to ridicule Caesar, by putting an ordinary guy on the throne, by anointing an ordinary guy, a Ben-Adam, son of God and king, and then crucifying that guy. That's how Caesar's going to be canceled. And let's see how the rulers of the people respond to that teaching, Richard. The emphasis you placed, Father, on this being the end of all of his words is, I think, significant here because it says literally in Greek, all these logos, all these words, not rimata, as in just the spoken words, but all these words, the logos. First, we have this long series of parables that he offered in chapters 24 and 25. But in another way, he's entering Jerusalem to be killed. Everything that he could have done to prepare his disciples, his mathiti, his, his disciples, he's done. The lecture has now ended. You get a week to prepare on your own, and then it's the exam. But the professor has done teaching. The professor has delivered all the material. It's now up to you to learn. And the last two chapters have been entirely about preparation. We who are hearing this text read to us, we're not inside the story. We're not the Mathiti that he's speaking to. We are the ones hearing the story about Jesus speaking to his Mathiti, his disciples. Our job is to prepare ourselves through these words of Jesus. Because that's the only way that this Ben-Adam being crucified is going to make any sense other than another victim of empire, another way to keep the peace, another way to strike fear into the heart of our enemies. This is the obedient one. This is the first one who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the one who is the heir to the king of the kingdom of heaven. But we have to be prepared through this word, through these words, through all these words of Jesus, so that we can be prepared like the virgins with their oil, like the sheep and the goats, and like all the rest, we have to be ready. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Now, before I go any further, 
It's striking, even looking at the text on my page in English. Not only striking, Richard, but painful, frankly, to see the words son of man in Hebrew, ben Adam, just above the title chief priest. So you have ordinary person and chief priest. You have ordinary person, Jesus Christ, and presbyteros, the elder, the presbyter. It's very painful on the eyes. Whether you're looking at it in Greek or you're looking at it in English, it's very painful if you understand the original meaning of Son of Man. And again, the way they capitalize the S and they capitalize the M in English because of their fixation on ontology and proper nouns and capital letters. I was explaining that in Bible study the other night. Just read one of Paul's letters in English. Why sometimes is spirit capitalized and other times it's not? Because the person translating is deciding when they think it's referring to the Holy Spirit and when it's referring to spirit generically. That's an interpretation. How do you know when it's referring to what? The original manuscripts did not differentiate lowercase, uppercase. It's a modern innovation. So if you're serious, you have to do the work to understand what's going on in the letter. You have the Son of Man, who is the anointed one of Israel, who's presented as an ordinary guy, and you have these fleshly men presented as these chiefs and elders who are gathering in the court of the Archiarefs, named Caiaphas, in order to plot against God's anointed. It's a big joke. The contrast between the Son of Man and these very powerful people, I think, is really important, Father. And for me, once I hear Passover, you know, I love the Old Testament, so I'm going to be thinking, okay, Passover, Exodus, leaving the slavery of Egypt. And the anti-empire message of the Exodus is the peace and stability you had in Egypt, you have to give up for the chaos and instability and intenuousness and impossibility even of life of the desert. God is there for you at Sinai. That's where he delivers his law, not in Egypt. And Jesus here is almost like Moses in the way that he enters right into the belly of the beast, but instead of Pharaoh and his court, we're with Caiaphas, the high priest, in his palace, and the other chief priests and the elders of the people. And so we have all the most powerful people, and Jesus is already identifying himself as A, with the Passover, and B, the one who will be crucified. And that combination of the one who's going to be crucified and the one who is the Son of Man is there to poke the thumb in the eye of those who would keep the stability of the empire. We know how it worked out when Pharaoh tried to keep stability when Moses came to end the party, and we know how it's going to end 
with the eventual destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus was already talking about in chapter 24. And what do we expect these rulers of the people to be doing about the possibility of crucifixion? Should they be getting together to think about how to protect one of the children of their community, one of the sons of Adam, whom Rome might threaten? Because remember, crucifixion was an implement of oppression, a tool of oppression in the Roman Empire. And if you're one of the rulers of God's people, supposedly, you should be finding a way to shelter and care for God's children, of whom Jesus is one as a Ben-Adam in the house of Israel. So are they thinking about what to do? How to care for one of the children in their community? No! They are plotting together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. So not only are they not thinking about how to care for Jesus, but they're trying to one-up the Roman Empire and kill Jesus themselves. Now, granted, the only reason we know that Jesus has a Roman target on him of crucifixion is because the writers told us by reading us in on Jesus's teaching to his inner circle that he's going to be crucified. And we know that the Romans are going to crucify him because that's what the Romans do. So these are incontrovertible facts. When you hear crucifixion, you know there's a Roman on the other end of this action. So we know the Romans are going to put Jesus to death, but it's tragic and ironic (laughs) that without any help from the Romans, the people who should be caring for the sons of Israel are plotting to kill the sons of Israel. Reminds me of the prophets. You should be caring for God's children, but instead you are feasting on God's children in order to care for yourself. That is the game of the worldly ruler. That is the game of religion in the ancient Near East. That is why you sacrifice to your gods. Whether you're sacrificing an animal or any other kind of burnt offering, whatever it is you're doing to placate your God in your city, ultimately it's all human sacrifice because you are trying to placate an abusive deity to avoid suffering. The whole system is neurotic and backwards. And God is about to undo all of that in Scripture by saying, no, 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 no. I don't want anything from you. That's the whole point of grace. I don't want your sacrifice. I'm going to make the offering. This isn't some twisted business deal where you sacrifice something for me. Are you joking? So let me put it straight for you. I'm going to sacrifice my son, and he's going to feed you, so just chill. And this word that is used, and it's translated in different ways, secretly or subtly, in Greek it's dolo, from dolos. It means guile. So when Nathaniel says in the Gospel of John that here is one in whom there is no guile, it's the same word. It's like trickery or craftiness or manipulation. So the Gospel writer is bringing out that this Jesus 
is very straightforward about what he's going to do and what it's going to look like. He has not been tricky. He's been repeating himself over and over. The idea is straightforward, even though it's been repeated over and over again for two chapters. These are manipulators. These are players. The chief priests and the elders of the people and the high priest and Caiaphas won't teach in a straightforward way. They won't bring their ideas in a straightforward way. This is the contrast that the gospel writer brings between Jesus and these people. This is how Jesus functions, straightforward, teaching anyone who will listen. But this high priest and these other priests and elders, whose job it is actually to teach the people, like you said, Father, they don't want to teach the people. They want to devour the people. They don't want to give an offer to the people. They want to take from the people and devour the people. The offering of all these words of Jesus compared to the trickery and the backhandedness of these supposed leaders, these people with the power of Rome behind them is striking. But they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. I mean, this is the calculus people do all the time. By the way, the word festival could also be translated as feast. It refers to the Passover, which makes this more diabolical, because it's precisely during the religious festival that you people should be teaching them that it is incorrect to shed innocent blood in Jeremiah, to shed any blood, frankly, let alone, quote, innocent blood, because who decides which blood is innocent except the Lord? Are you kidding me? Instead, you're plotting to commit murder on the feast, and you're worried not about what the people learn, but about what the people are going to do that could impact you? What is it that Paul said? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. If you teach the mob to riot in order to get their way, that is what you will get, a mob that riots to demand what it wants. It's really disgraceful that these rulers of Israel, who should be teaching and preaching the Torah on the Feast of Passover, are instead willing to commit sin and plot to commit the worst kind of evil and to promote sin and to allow sin to avoid any kind of a conflict with the people. It's a big joke, Rich. Already in the first few verses of Matthew 26, we have a rejection and a betrayal of everything Jesus just completed saying. The people who are in charge of teaching won't teach, and the one that they have in their crosshairs is the one who's teaching with the most authority. They don't want a teacher here. The teacher is the one who gets into big trouble. I mean, I was listening to a program about the waves of the revolution in China. During one wave, the greatest number of victims were teachers, where the government actively encouraged students to betray their teachers and disgraced teachers would be paraded through the streets with their heads shaved, forced to repeat horrible insults about themselves. You go against the teachers in order to keep the mob with you. 
these supposed leaders whose job it was to teach only care about placating the mob and keeping the mob with them. They believe that peace is more important than the gospel. This is true today in the United States. This is true in every empire. The one teaching that matters to the authority is that of peace and prosperity, and anyone who comes against it, anyone who teaches that none of this matters, cannot last in such a society. Which is why Jesus said, <laughs> get ready to leave Jerusalem and head for the wilderness. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.